Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down into a single topic, think about a question and unpack the rest. This week we are asking, what are we missing when we talk about startup failure? And I'm joined by one of the most successful people I know, which is fitting. So Alex Wilhelm, happy to have you. Either that was sarcastic and kind of mean or it was <laughs> honest and kind of sad. It was I, the I latter. <laughs> the latter. I I swear. <laughs> no, I just want to say that I'm stoked by this topic because I think it really cuts across a number of things we're seeing in the news, cultural conversations we've been having across social media. And I'm really glad that we've picked a topic that's going to guarantee no negative responses whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, it's tough, right? I feel like the tech versus media tensions have always been rooted about how journalists cover failure and how founders hide and obfuscate failure. And so I think that we've always kind of talked about this on Slack and throughout the Friday show, but it is kind yeah. of a risk for us to be taking on a spicy topic for 30 minutes because I agree, like there's a reason why it breaks everyone up every three months on tech Twitter and people get blocked and unfollowed. I've been through the tech Twitter tech versus media thing so many times now. I can almost script it for you. I know we're, we're going to get into this, but like, I hope that we can actually advance the conversation a little bit, explain more how we think and show empathy, as you might say, and try to have an open mind. But we're talking about this all for reasons, Tasha. So why don't you explain to people, you know, why this is the moment to really riff on startup failure? Definitely. So as we're kind of talking about, like startup failure is something that I think is both overcovered as we see through multiple documentaries about Theranos and TV shows as well. We work Uber. We've seen all of those companies and their implosions and some of them rebuilding stories covered to death. And then we've also seen it being undercovered a lot where people get pretty upset when there is a investigation into what they would describe as a very normal part of startups, which is mistakes, which is layoffs and pivots along the way. I think the real goal with this episode is, yes, figure out what we're missing when we talk about startup failure, but also just cast a light into the nuance of failure because it is so much more complicated. And there's a reason why it annoys so many people when they see the headline or watch the TV show or get compared to Theranos when they are a pre-seed startup in biotech. Yeah. I think when we talk about defining failure, I put the WeWorks and the Theranoses to one side because to me, they're kind of like outlier implosions. And so they're not really illustrative of what I care about. And so like my spouse who does not know what I do for a living because she doesn't care <laughs> is watching, uh, you know, Netflix and so forth. And so she has actually seen bits of, I think the WeWork one. Yes. And it was interesting to see like a pop culture version of something that you and I reported through end up that far afield. So I don't keep those in the bucket that we're talking about. I'm more curious about like normal startups, if you will, that are non-fraudulent and not run by, well, Adam Newman. Exactly. Yeah, it's tough because I think that definitely is what people who are outside of our environment, to your point, start associating. And I don't blame them. I think that there is probably definitely a value that those stories were exposed and covered the way they were. There was some great journalism behind that. But I think the way that we've been watching and why we're talking about this now is we're starting to see our definition of failure look a lot more broad and even subtle than a startup crumbling because it never had a product. We're seeing startups that maybe raised at a billion dollar valuation not really have revenue that comes even close to half of that sort of valuation. And so I feel like my definition of failure after reporting on tech for the past, I guess, three years is really like a mistake or a realization that alters the trajectory of a business in a way that isn't just up and to the right. That's the closest I've gotten to failure. But even that feels like not enough or I don't even know if to your point, failure is the right word if we're talking about mistakes here and there. 
Yeah, I think there's a wide overlap between struggles at a startup and discussion of failure of a startup. And I think that's because standards are so high. Often when we talk about a company that's struggling, that raised a lot of venture capital, we're not talking about a business that has shut down. They haven't liquidated the assets yet. They haven't laid everyone off. They haven't broken their lease or if they have an office or not. Instead, we're often seeing a company is just missing its expectations. So if they raised a lot of money at a high price and then growth didn't materialize or it came a lot more slowly than expected, suddenly they can be in a jam where they can't raise more capital, where they can't retain employees, where they can't invest in product. And so they kind of end up stuck, if you will, inside the market. And so struggle, sure, but also a failure to meet the expectations of their capital backers and probably not going to raise another round again. And is that a failure from the startup trajectory? Absolutely. And so I think failure is a fuzzy term, which is why we picked it, frankly, because it encompasses quite a lot in this particular niche. Yeah. As you say that, it's like kind of interesting because when we think of failure, we often think of like a shutdown and we never hear from them again. And that name or business model is soiled for all eternity when really like failure can be something that happens day two of your business and you have to change the way you work as a result. And you may then become successful one day. I mean, so many stories out there of companies that originally started in one way and then ended up becoming YouTube or something like that because they sure. made a, they reversed that failure later on. I also want to kind of talk a little bit about the startup media hype cycle because mm. I think that kind of goes into how people view and discuss failure. It was someone, please tweet us the chart if you find it. I haven't been able to find the chart, but someone once kind of wrote out that when a startup first launches and they get a lot of media and spotlight, they become the darling. Then they raise the series A and B and we start to see some competitors. They start to be spicier. When you're a series C, D or E, you start kind of having higher standards put on you. And as journalists, I ask harder questions. I have less empathy if you don't make a profit as a late stage startup. Finally, when you're like a public company or an Amazon, we start really holding you to accountability and giving you a much harder time than when you were a pre-seed startup. And that also makes me think a little bit about the cycle of failure. Yeah, I think the startup media hype cycle corresponds well to kind of the cycle of failure because it's when media expectations, which is essentially a comp for investor expectations, we're just lagging behind because we know less than investors in a company don't match up with the reality of where a business is going. This is when stories like layoffs at companies in the early pandemic or layoffs more recently kind of come in and you begin to see cracks in the in the plan or the edifice of these companies that uh, up until recently were all rather shiny in a good way. I mean, last year was a period of record venture capital investment around the world in essentially every single startup category. If you were building something in the private markets last year, you probably raised some money. Congrats. Good job. But what we're seeing this year is the sentiment change and a lot of companies we think, based on private and public conversations with investors and founders, looking at early data from Q1, looking at public market data, essentially all the stuff we can, is that we're heading into a rough patch. And I think that's kind of why I wanted to talk about this, because I feel like we're going to be covering a lot of the stuff this year. Changes in valuations, down rounds, flat rounds, not just layoffs, but like hiring freezes, which is kind of a soft layoff because you don't backfill roles and so forth, limited marketing budgets, etc. Changed growth expectations, lack of IPOs. There's going to be a lot of issues this year that you could bucket as failure. Yes. I think a part of our episode is definitely going to be just like helping people not be allergic to that word as the end all be all of what their company will do forever. So to your point, Alex, we're going to be seeing a lot of examples and different definitions of failure over the next few months. But I wanted to start off by running us through some headlines recently on TechCrunch, I think in the last few weeks, just to remind people of where we're at. And then maybe we could each walk through our different cycles of failure that we expect to see and maybe can help people better understand where their company or a company that they might be paying attention to 
exists. Before we do that, I just want to point out that if you're hanging out with us today and you're thinking, gosh, this show's a downer. Oh, what, a bu- what a bummer. These two people are just walking through the mud without shoes on. Hear me out. On the show, we have covered 68 billion startup rounds over the years, <laughs> all of which are very positive little news items. This is just the response essentially to all the positive stuff we said last year. This is the hangover from the party. And as someone who's been to a couple parties in his life and familiar with the hangover effect, and let me tell you, it's real. And so is this. And so we're not being unkind. We're not inventing this. We're just describing what's happening. Yeah. If we cover the rise, we have to cover the fall because otherwise there's this like fallacy of all startups are going to succeed that we don't want to ever be pushing. In fact, most startups fail. And that's part of the reason why, which we'll get to later, covering failures and that being controversial can be so frustrating as a reporter because we all know so many companies fail. Let's talk about it louder. And it's okay because you can try it again. You know, a lot of people back second and third time founders. Okay, Natasha, headlines. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay, a couple headlines. Just these past few weeks, we saw Hoppin, a company that we on equity called the largest growth story of the year, cut 12% of staff. There are allegedly more layoffs coming. We also saw work rise, which was valued at 2.9 billion cut staff and some of its verticals. A crypto exchange laid off a quarter of staff. We've seen pivots. We've seen executives getting removed after struggling SPACs. And a lot of employees are, as we've been seeing with the great resignation, changing ship. One of my friends said that he's now actually starting to consider big tech as an option because private startups in the unicorn stage no longer feel like the best place to be. So that's just kind of a smattering of sentiment right now of how we're seeing sentiment really change and actually go from, are things going to change to, okay, we're seeing companies actually have to change the way that they build. Yeah. And this brings us to kind of our view of how this happens. Natasha and I have drawn two charts. And so if you go to the podcast post over on the site, you'll find these two images. We drew them for you with all of our artistic flair, uh, which means that they're not pretty, but they're hopefully illustrative. The way that I think about the startup hype slash failure cycle, it follows that chart you've seen from Gartner that goes up and then down and then kind of goes up again. And the way that I think about it is companies are founded and then they find what they think might be early product market fit, essentially PMF. It's essentially when you build something the market wants and you're in the right place at the right time and you can build something that's going to grow quickly. And then they raise more VC and then they begin to invest more and they go to market motion and then they get some early good results. This is like series A usually. And then they raise a big round because everyone's like, they've got it. They're going to succeed. And then they discover they don't have actually as strong of product market fit as they expected. And things are going to be much more difficult. That means higher burn, slower growth, and issues. And then you kind of end up in this sad part of the chart. And this is like down round layoffs. And if you're there, you have some hard choices to make because if you want to grow faster, you have to spend more, but you're worried about raising capital. So what are you going to do? Well, maybe you'll ask some people, but then you don't have staff. It's really tough. It's not a good place to be. Some companies do break out of this. They find PMF, they crush it. Hell yeah. A lot of companies end up in kind of a slow growth zone of pain, according to my excellent graphic. And some startups will eventually just fail because they're too expensive to run for their growth. That's the way that I've seen it happen quite a lot. And I think we're going to see a good chunk of that this year. I think that the way you just described it made me just, it just screamed like failure is such a choose your own adventure sort of thing for startups. You can make so many different decisions. For the ones that are raising a lot of money at high valuations, maybe runway isn't the reason that they fail, but it's consistently not being able to meet that valuation and people starting to kind of not believe in them. And then they can't eventually raise the fall one round or, or at all make money to stay afloat. So it's kind of funny to see how you can see failure be shielded or hidden from different companies, depending on their financing backgrounds. Financing back Backgrounds and runway, absolutely. And then also just like, what's it worth? If a company is growing at 5% per year and it's burning $2 million per month, it doesn't matter if it has 20 million or 50 million. So essentially, how much of that money do you want to put into this engine that's inefficiently not generating material revenue growth? At some point, you want to put your chip somewhere else that has a chance. That's my read. But Natasha, you drew a spiral chart. (laughs) 
<laughs> which I thought was lovely. It uh, reminds me of biology in sixth grade. So talk me through this, uh, this cell you Yeah, found. so this is definitely one path that I'm seeing. And it kind of is interesting because I feel like we can put so many company names in this trajectory and it would work for them. It's basically a background into how I'm thinking about covering these companies as we see them change their mind. So we've seen a ton of companies. Let's pick EdTech, the category that I covered a lot in 2021. A lot of those companies hit unicorn status during the pandemic, yes. during an insane point of demand. They raised lots of money, some of them raising venture capital for the first first time in their lives and then raising three more rounds within the next six months. I won't name names. Um, and then we'll see them over hire. Suddenly, experiencing a change in demand. For pandemic companies, it might just be the world reopening and vaccines. For others, it might be that there's a new clubhouse on the market and the actual clubhouse now is changing in what it needs to provide to listeners. We'll see companies then miss revenue projections because of that changing demand. And that's when things start to get loosey-goosey. <laughs> we see companies start to pivot. We see companies maybe feel like they need to commit fraud in a sort of way in order to keep getting their investors to trust them and keeping their employees on board. As a result, we'll see burnout. We'll see culture issues. We will see high turnover. Executives will depart. And then maybe we'll see layoffs. That is the fastest way for a company to extend runway because employee salaries are the most expensive part about running a business. And I think the culture issue kind of becomes just part of the story at this point all through the background. I really learned that when recovering Roe was that culture issues were a symptom of a lot of strategic decisions made. In their case, it was a bunch of poorly thought out acquisitions per former employees. Just kind of running through what kind of happens after we've reached this high point of struggling. Some lucky ones will get a down round where they get runway. Maybe they'll only raise from existing investors. That's a red flag. Right. because it means that they haven't been able to convince new people to trust them. I'm turning my head to watch how my spiral goes now. <laughs> we, we're both going to need massages from reading your charts. You can't see us because we're on audio, but like there's a lot of head bending going on <laughs> to try to read Natasha's circle chart. Yeah, keep going, keep After going. you figure out if you can get runway, but you still are struggling, I think you kind of have a couple of options. It's just either getting acquired and having a soft landing, shutting down altogether, or pivoting. And Alex, what you mentioned is, okay, this last glimmer of hope where you find your second chance. Some companies, of course, have shut down. And I think that those founders, some of them do experience a redemption arc. We've seen a lot of people who have had failed startups start new ones and still use that experience. Hint, hint, Quibi. <laughs> Quibi has had a lot of alums jump out and still raise money. So, so that's like where I see the arc of failure going. It's a lot of small things until it's a lot of big, elusive, hard to pin down factors that eventually mean that a company either needs to sunset, pivot its way to hopeful success, or disappear from the conversation for a few years until it gets its shit together. Yeah. It makes sense to me because I've seen it so much. I've been watching startups closely since my first year of college and I'm old now. So like it's been a minute. I've enjoyed every minute of it because startups are fundamentally hilarious. They are just fascinating little machines. They are the most interesting part of business. They are the most bold, the most brash, the most crazy. And I'm absolutely here for it. But there is a other side of this, Natasha, that we wanted to talk about. And one of the genesis points for this conversation was some recent coverage of some startups that have women founders and the coverage of them, how they're covered. And there has been criticism of said coverage. There has been defense of said coverage. And I want to give you a second to kind of walk us into this. Yeah. So I've thought a lot about this and have for a long time really didn't weigh into the idea of female takedown pieces. I am obviously a reporter who understands the importance of covering companies as they struggle and as they navigate through those struggles, whether it's through the voices of former and current employees or through the voices of a CEO who publishes a Medium post and addresses why they laid off half their staff. The specific dynamic that comes up with female takedown pieces is the belief that journalists are unfairly targeting people who are already historically overlooked, fa 
face a ton of bias and are held to unfair standards in their coverage of those struggles. AKA, if a white dude did this, would this still be a story? And this has always been hard because I think that there's two responses that I usually have. One, and this is just my journalist side, is like, we need to cover the fall as well as we cover the rise. And the way we position founders during the rise may be unfair. It may not be just the founder that is making this company successful, but we still give them a huge microphone. And so when they fall, when these companies struggle, I think it's important to also address the founder as part of that reason. That's my first response. My second response is, is that tips can be inherently biased. People can speak about their employer and speak about them in a negative way simply because they disrupt their expectations of how a female executive should act. And so I do think it's important for diverse editors and reporters to be in newsrooms to make sure we are questioning our sources and remembering that the same way a white dude from Stanford can maybe show vulnerability. I feel like a female founder had once told me that she can't talk to me about her struggles because she can't afford to show vulnerability at this point in her career. And that changed the way I report. I know I just rambled, but that's kind of like my two no, perspectives. That, that wasn't a ramble at all. That was relatively succinct. I would say well Thank framed. You. <laughs> Not bad. What would you add? You're, or you're so too hard on yourself. <laughs> well, I mean, I would start at the top and say, I don't like the phrase female takedown yes. pieces because it groups a collection of critical coverage under an inherently bad banner. It would be like if you called everything that I write boring ass chart bullshit. Like I would be like, hey, it's only partially boring, (laughs) chart-ass bullshit or whatever. You know what I mean? The phrasing there matters. So let's maybe broaden the umbrella and say, pieces critical startup founders for behaviors of one sort or another. Now, no one complains when people cover fraud, for example. Like I've seen, I think you, Byram, had two founders and they were both genders and you know, no one's like, oh, you're attacking a woman because there's so much to that. It's clear bad things have happened. Instead, it seems to be pieces about female CEOs who are criticized for management styles. Yes or management choices. And I'm of two vibes about this. One, I am worried about the things that you said, which is that I'm worried that the people complaining and making noise are inherently sexist and therefore the complaints are unfairly strong, I think is what I would say. But what I have no patience for is people defending poor actions by startup executives of any founder makeup because, quote, startups are hard. You don't get a free pass to be a bad person just because you're doing a hard task. You have to still act with empathy and kindness. And I find it very also annoying that the media is criticized as inherently sexist and biased from people who still can't invest in women. So, Shut the f*** up. How about that? I I will completely co-sign that perspective. I think that, I mean, going back to even the cycles that we've been talking about, I understand if you are a pre-seed startup making a mistake. I don't think you should ever treat someone badly. But I think when you are a founder who is accountable of hundreds of lives, customers, and have millions of dollars of venture capital behind you, you of course, are going to be held to a higher standard. And I don't think it's fair to cut people slack based on their background. That said, it's weird because I think that as much as we shouldn't not cover something just because it's a female founder, I think we also have to remember that the reality of how the tech world has preconceived notions about how historically overlooked individuals should act does influence reporting. The same mistake that I would make if I attributed a startup success to one founder is the same mistake as attributing their failure to one founder. Yes, if they are going to be celebrated as a pioneer, we should similarly hold them accountable. But I also think that where I've landed is failure is so much more complex that it could be venture capital incentives. It could be being a woman of color as a founder and saying yes to things in order to get access to doors that were originally closed and then getting two in under their head. So I think that that's the tension that I keep finding myself in. There is bad reporting, but there's also necessary reporting that requires a lot of nuance. Yeah, I'll co-sign all of that as well. I think what we're kind of advocating for here is fairness and neutrality from ourselves, our 
on our group of the world. And I would say implicit to that is a pushback against the relative cult of toxic positivity that startups work in. You know, you try to get a VC to say something mean about another VC on Twitter and then get them on the phone and be off the record. Well, it's a different story. (laughs) And so I'm tired of the BS. I think that the media does some coverage of founders who are either making mistakes, behaving poorly, treating people poorly, whatever. But it's such a small fraction of the overall coverage to me that I'm amazed at the response. It's as if people like demand 100% niceness from the media. And whenever there's a negative story, it's, oh, all the media hates us or something like that. And I'm just like, calm down. You're rich. Like, this doesn't even impact you. And startups get bad coverage all the time and still crush it. You know, that's my main beef with this. And I'll just say one more thing and then I'll promise I'll shut up. But like, people are like, you know, oh, you know, if a white man had done this, then it wouldn't have been covered. Let's cover it. Drop me the messages. Let's go. If the answer to covering some founders is that we're not covering enough founders who are misbehaving. Cool. We can do that. I don't think that's what VCs actually want, but I'm here for it if it 100%. is. hundred percent. I think there's like such an important difference between like why certain people are, are able to speak up and why certain aren't empowered in the first place. And I think we recognize that at TC and on this podcast all the time, the way we interview people. I want to make sure people listening know that. But to what you're saying, I am a strong believer in like, okay, let's say you are a startup founder that's struggling right now and you're listening to this podcast and you're like, okay, shit, they're coming for me next. I have an interview with Alex next week. How do I be honest about about the struggles I'm facing right now. There is a way to talk about pivots, changes, even like changing expectations in a way that isn't calling for the end of your startup, but is bringing vulnerability into your startup story. AKA, we know that things are not normal right now for a lot of companies. And I'm not saying that talking about all your challenges will ever prevent you from having an investigation. If you are a bad founder, you I hope you get exposed one day. But I think that being upfront and talking about these things without an allergy is super helpful for reporters and for people to understand and not be surprised by a company as it grows. I literally wrote a column yeah. a few weeks ago about like, let's talk about pivots again. I mean, there was a time where pivots were kind of cool and then they completely became a signal of you not knowing your shit. And now I'm like, guys, it's okay. You're allowed to pivot and that's allowed to be the headline. It doesn't have to always be an evolution. It's just nuances like that that piss me off. Speaking of nuances, like earlier in the show, you mentioned that often startups that are struggling to raise a kind of new normal round of capital will go to their inside investors and raise a smaller round to keep things afloat. And you said that's a negative signal. Well, yes, historically it was, but it wasn't last year. Raising inside rounds last year was a sign of strength because your investors couldn't wait to double down or triple down. That's how fast things change. That's how fast the nuance can flip. And so you have to stay pretty close to the news. And we try to. And that does involve talking about things that aren't going well. But I'll just diverge things a little bit. Startup failure by business result is neither here nor there to me. Some startups will fail. Some will succeed. Some people will get rich. Some people don't. Cool. I'm interested in the larger story about how tech is changing the world and the flow of the larger business world. That's my jam. On the other hand, people treating other people poorly, I do care about in every case. That's the other side of this. So like you can have an amazing company, but if you're a terrible person, you can still end up getting on the wrong end of the media stick. That to me is okay. But I don't want to like overly mix business results and personality failures because they're just, they often go together, Yes, but they are in fact Totally, totally. It can be a hard thing. So thank you for saying that because I think that we try and often talk about failure. Going back to how we started this, but Theranos and WeWork where it was kind of everything, right? It checked up every single box of failure. And so (laughs) it was pretty easy for people to understand. But because failure is so much more complex and it's kind of what we're missing from a lot of like the loudest conversations in the room, it's helpful to remember that those things can exist separately. And I guess like I want to end by, (laughs) we basically spent the entire episode talking about why this is hard to talk about, but I want to end by being like why we should still have the conversation and have it loudly. Alex, do you want to start? Well, yeah. I mean, this is not the full answer, but here's a part of it. A lot of people out there are building startups 
and they have less capital and less access and less information. And all they see in the headlines is company X raises $500 million from Tiger or SoftBank and they're off now they're worth $88 billion and so forth. And yes, that is the standout result. That is the outlier, but it's not the reality. A lot of startups don't do that. A lot of startups do okay, or they bootstrap or they raise a little bit of money or they're based in a market, but that doesn't have a lot of angel investors or whatever. And so I think by pointing out that not everything goes so well, provides space for people to try their hand at it. If you think you have to become the next Slack, maybe you're not going to do it. I don't think that's any good. I think it completely can gaslight people to your point and make them think that they are the only one experiencing this right now by if we only cover the multi-billion dollar valuations. The only thing I'll probably add is we're experiencing this market recorrection. We're not calling it a reckoning yet. I don't think we're going to see companies completely disappear off the face of the earth. But as we see expectations become more realistic, I think it does all of us a service to be on the same page or, or at least get closer to the truth. Because if not, I don't really know if we're all going to like make it through it. I think that our analysis will be off. I think founders will raise at the wrong valuations. I think if you're a pre-seed founder and you haven't read about a company pivoting multiple times, you're going to feel really alone in your pivot. So I I guess I'm basically echoing what you said, Alex, but literally from a business strategy sense, talking about failure makes a lot of sense because how else do you kind of get the playbook and get the directions on navigating this time? Just saying that it's kind of something that we're just weathering the storm and we'll see what happens doesn't really further the conversation at all. No. And I think that's our job. And I hope we did a reasonable push on that today. I hope this sets a foundation for people to know that when we write something that we're doing it from a place of good intent, frankly. I mean, like that's, I don't wake up and start grinding my axe and start (laughs) looking for a neck. Mostly I wake up and try to consume a lot of coffee and then try to figure out what's going on that's interesting to share with the TechCrunch readership, you know, my favorite people. So that's that's the take of it. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. Last night, well, Monday night, by the time you hear this, we wrote about Latch losing its CFO. You know, we had him on the show. So covering his exit from the company isn't something that I was like, oh, this is great news. We have to tear him down. But it was like, this shows changes in the SPAC world, the world of startup exits in general. And here's the CFO that, frankly, I quite liked. He's super sharp, experienced, and we have an interview set up with him. And if you don't talk about the other side of the coin, you don't have a whole quarter, nickel, dime. (laughs) That analogy sucks. The sooner... I almost stopped the landing. I'm going to try an analogy too. The sooner we can kind of stop viewing pivots or executive shakeups or layoffs as kind of like the evil cousin of the funding round story, but more so kind of like the necessary twin or necessary family member to those kinds of announcements. I don't know if this is working. I think the sooner we'll get to a more realistic place. And I know the Wednesday show often ends on this note where like transparency is important. But I think specifically with failure, specifically coming off a time when things have become so capital rich, fluffy, full of people and high valuations, just like taking 30 minutes to talk about the fact that like journalists have a role in doing smart reporting, thinking about their sources and having empathy as much as founders deserve and should be held accountable for the mistakes they made when they're in charge of millions of dollars and hundreds of lives. Feels important to say out loud and remind people about. I agree. I think the takedown story to leave everyone off should no longer be a phrase we try and promote as a way to describe all stories. I think there has been bad reporting in this category, but I don't think that anyone who's doing good journalism should be writing a takedown story. I think it should be a lot more nuanced than a single CEO. And just to kind of put a cap on this, I know this is Natasha's show, so I shouldn't be doing Please the close-up, do. but we literally just had some breaking news inside of our internal applications about a company that is shutting down. So now I'm going to go write about that. So I'm glad that I just had this conversation so I can do it in a polite and fair manner. Natasha, thank you for having me. 
Alex, thank you for chatting about failure and I guess now covering some failure in and of itself. For everyone else, we will see you on Hopin on Thursday. We are doing yet another live show. I am back after being sick and then being MIA. So catch me there. And if you don't want to come to Hopin, I don't hate you, but please try. And if not, come on Friday to the podcast feeds. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>